to take a copy of God's Word together with me, and then also if you have a copy of the Confession this morning. Uh, we have arrived at paragraph 9, uh, but we are going to this morning, we are going to look at paragraphs 9 and 10 together. Uh, they form really one continuous thought that we're going to deal with uh, as we finish this particular chapter of Christ the Mediator. Uh, so these final two paragraphs are really going to bring together all that the previous paragraphs have set the foundation for. Uh, they have all declared great truths. They've also confirmed them. And as we study these two paragraphs together, we're going to look at two main points or two main themes. But let's look together at, at paragraph 9 and we'll read straight through to the end of paragraph 10. Beginning there in paragraph 9, it says, The office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. Paragraph 10, This number and order of offices is necessary for in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetic office, and in respect of our alienation from God, and in perfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. And in respect of our averseness and utter inability to return to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. There are really two points, and each point will represent each paragraph. Paragraph 9, we're given the example or the thought of the exclusive position of Christ as the mediator. The exclusive position of Christ as the mediator. And paragraph 10 describes the extent of our need. So we have the exclusive office that belongs to Christ as mediator and the extent of our need. Now I'm going to emphasize more on the side of the extent of our need as we've dealt a lot already considering the exclusive position of Christ. I think we're probably all in agreement that only Christ can be that mediator. Uh, we learned back in 1 Timothy 2, 5, which is the only scripture reference that's given in paragraph 9, that told us this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If we did not have the confession of faith that helps guide our doctrine, all we need to believe that Christ is in the exclusive position of mediator would be 1 Timothy 2.5. That verse would stand alone with no other evidence, with no other documentation, with no other reference points. Just the fact that that verse declares him to be the only mediator. So we understand this exclusive position of Christ. We, we understand, I think, after this many weeks studying chapter number 8, that we all would find that Christ is the only mediator. And he, in fact, has that exclusive position, which is what paragraph 9 tells us. He says, it says it's, it's proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king. There's those three offices of mediation that is found in Christ. 
And it says at the end of that paragraph that it may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other, which tells us this. We cannot give to any other individual any aspect or even a single point of an office of mediator. No one else can be in that position. No one else can hold the office of mediator. Only Christ can hold that. That is a truth that we have to guard with our spiritual lives. It's not a small thing. It is a, it is a doctrine that is to be preserved. It is a doctrine that must be safeguarded. And we should be able to declare confidently, courageously, uh, boldly, that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We often think and we sometimes make comparisons in the human realm to try to understand these spiritual things. Uh, we could say as parents today, those of us that are parents can say there are times we have interceded for our children. We've interceded for our children when we pray for them. We've interceded for our children when we do something for them. But let's be very clear. You cannot nor will you ever be their mediator. You will never be able to be the mediator between them and God. They will never be able to put their faith in you to get access to God the Father. And it's so important that we realize that just because, and I think we understand this as a church, that just because we as parents are saved does not guarantee that our children are saved. Just being our children does not mean that they are automatically entered into the kingdom of God. They must be brought to repentance and belief on their own. And they have to trust in that mediator. They have to know that it's not in mom and dad. It's not in grandma and grandpa. It's not in my aunt and my uncle. It's in Jesus Christ alone. So it's important that we as parents understand we cannot be the mediator. We can intercede. And we as parents and grandparents ought to pray constantly, constantly for the salvation of our children and constantly for the salvation of grandchildren, family, whatever the case is, but we are not the mediator. Uh, even pastors and those that serve in similar roles as I serve. All I can do is preach the word and, and, and be uh, a, a, an overseer of whatever God puts uh, in front of me. But I am not your mediator. Uh, there's, there's no faith to be found in me. Uh, you don't place your faith in me in order to get to God. You place your faith in Christ alone. I am an imperfect, fallible, sinful man who will do sinful things. You cannot put your faith in me as your mediator. Now I can intercede for you, and I do. I pray for you. I pray for you as individuals. I pray for you as a church. I pray when you're going through tra tragedy. I pray for you when you're going through triumph. I pray for you, but I'm not a mediator. That's Christ's exclusive position. So all I can do is represent Christ in fact and in truth as to who He is. And point, him as your, point to Him as your sole object of faith and trust. And your hope. Your hope is found in that one exclusive mediator, which is Christ. So what do we truly do as individuals? If we cannot be mediators, what are we? We are servants and stewards. We are simply servants and stewards to the mysteries of God. If you know Christ is your Savior, you are simply a servant. You are a steward. God has given you the opportunity to proclaim the glorious gospel of His saving grace. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. And we are stewards. We're not mediators. We're servants. We're not mediators. This is a great privilege. 
Don't lessen yourself by saying, well, I I can't be a mediator. No, it's important that we understand God has made his children servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul wrote about that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter number 4. So we understand that there's only one mediator, and we've studied this in depth, the exclusive position of Christ. So paragraph 10 kind of reminds us now that not only is there the one exclusive position that Christ holds, but he is the only sufficiency to meet the extent of our need. Christ's sufficiency as mediator and the extent of our need. How needy are we? However needy you can come up with, you're more needy than that. However weak we think we are, we're weaker than that. Whatever we can come up with, how ignorant we are, we're more ignorant than that. Christ as our sufficiency and as our, as our mediator, notice it tells us that this number and order of offices is necessary. Now that's a, that's a reference back to the offices of prophet, priest, and king there in paragraph 10. He's, and here's the reason that those offices, each one of those offices are necessary. For in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. Because of our ignorance, we need Christ as the mediator in his prophet office, the office of prophet. Remember, we learned last week how it is Christ that reveals to us the mysteries of salvation, the mysteries of God. So it is our ignorance We're needy because we're ignorant. We're ignorant to the truth until Christ as prophet intercedes in that office of prophetic mediator. That's a truth that is meant to draw our attention to the reality of what we really, in fact, need. This paragraph 10 draws all these themes together. It pulls these thoughts already has been developed. And its main point is to draw us to the attention, again, back to these three offices and why they are so important. So first of all, we understand that there is this, in respect to our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetic office. And in respect of our alienation from God, And imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. So not only are we ignorant, but we are also alienated. To be alienated means to be without God, to be separated from God, to have no acceptable way to approach him. Even in our very best religious duty or religious service, that will not allow you to access and approach God. And yet it is Christ in this office that he, he is the one that is carrying that particular office out. He is the one that is solving this alienation that is found between us and himself. So we need his prophetic office and we need his priestly office. Uh, one of the scripture references there is John 1.18. John 1.18, and this one is more connected to uh, that first phrase of his prophetic office. And uh, you'll recall as we studied the book of John together, uh, John the Baptist was sent to prophesy or to uh, preach about the coming of this Messiah. And it talks about John bearing witness of him in John 1.15 
And talking about in verse 16, and of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by whom? By Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So we see that office of prophet. We see that the prophetic office and that mediation that Christ was actually the one who, who came by grace and by truth. And then in respect to this alienation uh, and this imperfection that's mentioned there, there's two scripture references given, Colossians 1.21 and Galatians 5.17. So Colossians 1.21 and then we'll look at Galatians 5.17. And this is in the section where Paul is, is writing about Christ being the hope of glory. And he uses the actual term alienated. He says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Of course, Paul is speaking about Christ as the one who has reconciled. This alienation, this separation from God, it is Christ who made you now sons and daughters who was once his enemy. That's really an amazing truth to think about the reality that before our eyes were opened to the truth, we were actually the enemies of God. Now, that's not a popular terminology that we use today. Uh, we've tried to use terms that kind of soften the blow, but when you are outside or without Christ, you are the enemy of God. And yet, it is Christ who reconciles and brings back together those who have been alienated by their own wicked works. Remember, the wicked works that were referenced there in Colossians 1 were not the wicked works of God. They were the wicked works of sinful man. Then Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. In other words, you cannot, you cannot even walk in the spirit without God reconciling you to himself. The context of what's happening there in Galatians 5 through even through the first 21 verses is Paul is talking about the righteousness that's found in Christ. And then he moves into verses 16 through 20, uh, 21 dealing with the works of the flesh. And he says, listen, uh, the, all, all that you do unless you've been reconciled to God are works of the flesh. So until you're reconciled, you cannot walk in the Spirit. So it's impossible for a person to walk in the Spirit who's not been reconciled to God. That's why I think I mentioned last week, we should not be shocked at the depravity that's on display amongst unbelievers. It's impossible to walk in the Spirit if you're still in the flesh. It's impossible to walk in the Spirit if you're still alienated from God. The only reason you and I walk in the Spirit at all is because Christ, as that uh, mediator, has reconciled us unto, him, unto Himself, unto the Father. That's Christ in that office of priest. So we understand that in our ignorance, we needed a prophet. In our alienation, we needed a priest. And that's what these paragraphs are telling us this morning. Uh, it says that we are not only in respect to our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services. It's, it's hard for us to grasp this. 
you know, we all think at times in our life, and I think, suppose this is probably true, uh, we've, we give our best effort at something. Uh, all of us are talented at something. Some would say, I have no talent. Everybody's talented at something. As a matter of fact, it's from an earthly perspective, you might be one of the best at it. But when it comes to the things of God, your very best religious service is imperfect. You, you could say, but I, I, pray, I pray seven hours a day. If it's just on you alone, that's imperfect. And we say, why is this important? Because there are many, many people who they think that they are actually reconciling themselves to God by some sort of religious work. They are acting as their own mediator. It's the same concept when a parent or a grandparent tries to save their child or grandchild. I'm going to pray for them on their behalf to God. Your prayer, sincere as it is, is not going to save their soul. No matter how sincere you are. Christ breaks upon that soul through the Spirit. And opens the eyes of that blinded young person, of that blinded individual. They are given the gift of repentance, and through the gift of repentance, they are brought to belief. So what do I do as a parent or a grandparent? I pray diligently for God to do a work in their life. I'm afraid there's been a lot of parents and grandparents and maybe other relatives throughout the years who've tried to pray their child into heaven without them even doing anything themselves. There are people who claim I'm a, I'm a child of God and there's no real personal acknowledgement of their own sin and there's no personal acknowledgement of their own repentance and their own belief. They say things like, yes, I had, a, I had a grandma and grandpa who prayed for me every single day. If that was all it took, then they could be a mediator. They cannot be a mediator. But Jesus Christ is the one who takes this imperfect work. And even when we, uh, sometimes we do this in our life, when we are, uh, even in our, our good service to God, our motives aren't right. Sometimes we serve God to get attention. And yet God, in spite of that imperfection, is still has reconciled us unto the Father. As we're studying the book of Matthew on Wednesday nights, I've made it, that's kind of my personal study now too, as I'm, I'm going through the book of Matthew and I'm, I'm, I'm up to, in my personal study, I'm up to the Sermon on the Mount. And on Wednesday nights, this Wednesday, we're, we're just now at the birth of Christ and looking at the visit of the Magi. But I'm, I'm reading again about all these sections about Jesus teaching on worry and teaching on fasting and teaching on how to pray. And it's an amazing thing that there's one common theme that keeps running through of, through of it is there is to be no dependence upon yourself in any of those areas. And it's amazing that as, as, that, as that sermon on the mount goes on and he talks about the things of even today about what we treasure in our heart. And he talks about when we pray, there's a right way to do it. When you fast, there's a right way to do it. Uh, you don't pray and fast so that people can see you. It's just done so that God sees it. So even our service, our motives can make it imperfect. But yet through Christ, we have been reconciled unto God. We don't lose 
We don't become rather we don't become alienated again from God every time that we sin. Praise God for that. Imagine if your reconciliation was based on you never sinning again. If our sin, every time we commit a sin, broke that, made us again alienated or enemies of God, what a horrible way that would be to live. Yet, if you're trying to save yourself by works, that's exactly how you're living. You're living as if I'm just not good enough. We've already established you're not good enough. There's nobody here good enough. But Christ is good enough. Christ is the only sufficiency to meet the extent of our need. So we understand that we're ignorant. We understand that we're alienated. But we also need to understand that we are weak in the fact that we are unable and unwilling to return to God. You know, we often ask the question again, we look at sinful society and we say, why would a person deny God? Because unless God makes that person willing, they are unable to come to God. This is not just some choice that's been given. Again, this is going to become even more interesting as we begin next week, chapter 9, and we start dealing with free will. And we start talking about what does it mean to actually have free will? Does this mean that we're all robots to God and nothing could be further from the truth? But we have this idea in our mind's eye that, listen, had I been left to myself, I eventually would have been willing to come to God. Even if that was the case, you'd still be unable without His empowering and without His drawing. God has to not only make us willing, but He makes us able. And in that, that is our weakness. Our weakness is that we need a king. So we need a prophet in our ignorance, we need a priest in our alienation, and we need a king in our weakness. All three of those counts, we are utterly lost and hopeless apart from the working of Christ in our life. Now there's a couple of verses that make reference to, a couple of scripture references that make uh, reference to this uh, as far as uh, needing his kingly office to convince to subdue, to draw, to uphold, to deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. We see John 16, 8. John 16, 8. And this is the realm of the, the kingly office of his mediation. John 16, 8. And let me just read a couple verses prior to that. Jesus, as he's speaking to his disciples, uh, he is speaking words of warning. He says, but now in verse 5, now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you ask me, whether goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and ye see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. 
For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. A little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. It's interesting that he, he tells them in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Uh, he said, sorrow has filled your heart, but I'm telling you the truth that it is important that I go away because if I do not go away, the comforter will not come unto you. And if the comfort will not come unto you, he will not guide you. The comforter, one of those roles of a comforter is not just to comfort us when we're going through times of grief, but it's comforting to know that we are guided by God himself through the spirit. It is God that is making us able and willing to follow truth. We're not following truth this morning because we're intellectual. We're following truth because the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is guiding us into all truth. You're not believing these things because you're intellectual. You're believing these things because the Spirit is guiding you into truth. He is, he is making you able and willing to believe. Again, we needed that because in our weakness... We're not strong enough, even mentally, to be able to grasp the truths that are presented. You know, it's an amazing thing. We will honor uh, geniuses of the world. And I'm not saying there's not a place for intelligence. And I'm thankful that God has granted people with intelligence way beyond mine. But we will say, now this person is the greatest mind that ever lived. You realize the greatest mind and the greatest example of real truth is found in the life of every believer. The possession of Christ is greater than any of the knowledge that any human being has ever been given. Now I want you to ponder that for a minute because what I just said is not a small thing. They will give people these awards for having this brilliant mind point to a believer who has no following, no real influence with people, maybe just serves in the shadows, that person, if that person knows Christ, knows much more than the most brilliant mind who doesn't have Christ. See, it's easy to celebrate intellectualism. It's another thing to realize that the greatest gift that we have is the gift of being guided into all truth and being made willing and able to believe. That's why we don't attempt to take any glory of our own for our own spiritual prowess and begin to say, I'm, I, am, I am light years apart from that person I serve in church with or that person I'm seated next to. No, you're not. Most likely what's happening is that's our own glorification where we're starting to puff ourselves up and say, compared to those other people, I'm pretty spiritual. Listen, if it wasn't for the Comforter, if it wasn't for Christ going away... We wouldn't even have the ability to do these things. Even to understand what I'm talking about this morning. This is really a triumphant statement. This is really statements that are being made here to declare the importance of what all of these things mean. In the book of, the book of Luke, at the end of the first chapter, uh, Zechariah uh, is, is, is praising God. And this is one of those statements that's... Uh, referenced there in paragraph 10. This is part of Zechariah's praise and 
Uh, if you remember Zacharias, uh, what happened with him is uh, he was made unable to speak when uh, the birth of, of, of John was being announced. And in verses 74 and 75, he says that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Zechariah in his praise was, was de- determining and delivering that it would be impossible for us to live and serve him without his help. That's so important to understand that when he talks about this kingly office, we needed Christ to convince, to subdue, to draw, to uphold, to deliver, and preserve us. It's not just one aspect of it. We needed Christ as mediator to do all of those things. That chapter ends on a note of triumph. It is, it is a picture of understanding the fullness of the kingdom that is coming. That's what it means. And preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. Friends, there is something so great coming. There is something so wonderful coming that we're still not comprehending fully what's awaiting us. We live in what we can see. We live in what we can feel. We live by what we can touch. That's our humanity. But we have been, we are being delivered and subdued and drawn and preserved unto something much greater than anything this world offers. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that the role of a believer is to make this world a better place. No, it's to prepare people for the eternity which is to come. If I'm preaching a gospel that's just now centered and right now present centered, I'm not preaching the gospel at all. The gospel is about this heavenly kingdom that is coming. It's about praying for our loved ones. It's about praying for our children and for our grandchildren that God would show His favor and open their eyes that they might know the truth. Oftentimes, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how can I do more for God? And I'm not suggesting in any sense that you shouldn't try to do things for God. But some of the greatest work you can do is when you pray for your children, you pray for your grandchildren, and you pray for other people's children, and you pray for the lost. You pray, 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 and realize that's the greatest work you can do. But i got to do something then do something that helps propagate the gospel. Realize that if it not, had not been for Christ reconciling us to God, we would still be unable and unwilling. This ultimate goal is the final kingdom and the fullness of the kingdom. We are saved, yes, so that we will enter into the heavenly kingdom, but we're also saved knowing that we will be preserved for all of eternity in that kingdom. So really today, that those last two paragraphs taken with uh, paragraph 8 from last week, really what this forms is the basis of the wholeness of our life based upon the virtue of Christ. Truly, prior to our salvation, we were in a state of depra- depravity. We were in a state that was leading us to destruction. We were literally dying. We were dying spiritually. But in Christ, we are, not only, we are not only converted, we are not only regenerated, 
but we are restored, we are renewed. It's a rebirth. We are spiritually reborn into a spiritual life that is marked by normal saving growth, not marked by the growth of sin in our life. This reality that we need to understand that before Christ, we are under the power of the devil. Before Christ, we are under his influences. We are subjected to his schemes. We are subjected to his devices. But now, if we are in Christ, we have been delivered from that. Now we are uh, with the mediator. We are under his headship. We are under his deliverance. We're no longer dead in our ignorance. We're no longer dead in our alienation. We're no longer weak. We're strong through Christ. We understand that that is the very good news of the gospel. Everything that we ever hope to be and everything that we are today is based upon who we are in Christ. That's something, folks, we ought to practically and boldly proclaim. This is not the time for our voices to be silent. This is not the time in our, in our world and, and whether the last 10 months had happened or not, this is not the time. I, when I talk about time, I'm talking about your life. It's never the time to be quiet about why you believe so, so strongly what you believe. There are voices out there in the world, and those voices are being heard. Some of those voices are just elevating the volume in order for you to hear it. But the loudest voice doesn't always mean it's speaking truth. The loudest voice in the room is not always right. Sometimes the voice of the Lord is not a trumpet. It's not a, a loud flash. It's not a, it's not a, a, a pounding. It's a, it's a still small voice. Folks, I'm telling you, the world will go after whatever the next loudest voice is, and it will continue to follow the loudest voice because it assumes that the loudest voice is right and everybody else is following the loudest voice, so I should follow the loudest voice too. Jesus Christ, He is the, he is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. It may not come thundering down from heaven today like He is the loudest voice. Now one day, Jesus Christ is coming again. And it's not going to be some secret arrival. It's going to be proclaimed and it's going to be obvious. And He is going to set all things in order. So what do we do until then? Practically, we proclaim what we know. You know, this is something I keep getting humbled by God often in my own personal, my own personal devotional time. I don't need you to keep... I don't need you to get louder. I just need you to get more settled. I just need you more settled in the truth. I just need you to proclaim what you already know. I have this insatiable thirst for theological knowledge, almost to a fault. And sometimes, and I, I think that's one of the reasons God led me into Matthew, because there are so many simple things in Matthew that are just say, what about... What about your worry? What about your prayer life? What about fasting? What about earthly riches compared to the heavenly kingdom? 
Oh, you can be theologically a giant. You can have an intellectual mind and you can get asked to speak at great conferences and then, but yet not even understand the very basics of the importance that we're talking about today, about the reality of what we do know. I'm convinced some of the, some of the saints that nobody knows about are the ones that have been following God the closest. We proclaim what we know. It's all right if you don't have a theological library, and it's all right that you don't know, understand some theological terms, but do you know Christ? Not through your parents, not through your grandparents, not through your relatives. Do you know Christ? And have you repented of your own sin and believed on Christ alone as a remedy for your salvation? You see, the matter of life and death it's really, we already know that. Life and death is certain. Every life here today that has life right now, if, if the Lord tarries His coming, it's going to experience death. It's, it's not an if, it's just a matter of when. And if the last 10 months has done something for a lot of people, there's a lot more people thinking about death than they ever were before. And I've watched it swing. I've watched it swing from this really isn't a big deal to swinging over here that says, listen, I'm really, now I know somebody who either did or is close. Now suddenly, real life and the real essence of death is real. It's, it's there. And yet, what do we know? I know that apart from Christ, I am dead in my ignorance. Apart from Christ, I am dead in my alienation. And apart from Christ, I'm dead in my weakness. But through Christ, as my mediator, all things will be made new. This chapter, as we wrap it up, I was thinking about just like five things to kind of wrap it up and appreciate about this chapter. The first thing is this, just the blessing of having a mediator. And being thankful. Just be thankful that you have a mediator. Not only as 100% God, but 100% man. Thankful for both parts of who Jesus Christ is. Secondly, the, the parts of his work as our prophet, as our priest, and our king. He meets all of our very real needs through the exercise of these offices. He's the one that does it. What about how the mediator works in the church? What, what, what about watching God, watching Christ work through the life of a person who was one day they were lost and they're dead in their trespasses and sins and to see within our church or whatever church and to see somebody be brought to repentance and somebody be brought to belief. Someone who you thought, maybe we'll never see this, but we're going to keep praying, we're going to keep asking, we're going to keep begging God to deliver. It's all because of the office of Christ as mediator that that person came to salvation. It can't be separated. Fourth, what about the price Christ had to pay? Think about what Christ had to pay to assume the office of prophet, priest, and king. And then number five, just the benefits that he gives us every day. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. 
It is, in fact, an unspeakable gift to know Jesus Christ. And to know that he ever lives to make intercession for us as he's there at the right hand of the Father. But even understanding that that mediating mediating work continues day after day after day. It never ends. He's continually interceding and mediating on our behalf so that when we sin, he's still in the role of prophet, priest, and king. And there's no return to our alienation. Christ remains our all in all. So I hope that'll help us this morning. Well, we'll take a few moments. Let me just stop the live stream here. And if you have any questions this morning about this, these particular chapters, we'll go ahead and take those and uh, try to do the best we can. And then, of course, next week, um, we 